I think that we have kind of probably reached a, a tipping point in terms of there being even the concept of worship music. You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to The Worship Review, the podcast which critically and charitably examines the texts of worship music. We are in our fifth series here where we're taking a look at songs that have been nominated or even won GMA Dove Award and also interviewing guests. And so this week we have two guests with us, our first twofer, uh, I guess you could say. Um, I'm Tyler. I am a linguist and a PhD candidate, and I'm joined as ever by Colin. Additionally, we have with us Mike Tapper, who is religion chair at Southern Wesleyan University, South Carolina. Hello, Mike. Greetings. Greetings. And uh, we also have Marc Jolicoeur with us as well, who is the pastor of Moncton Wesleyan Church in uh, New Brunswick and uh, the host of the Jolly Thoughts podcast, which if you haven't listened to, I strongly recommend some interesting uh, Jolly Thoughts there. Hello, Mark. Oh, ben, merci beaucoup, Tyler. T'es très gentil. Du rien. And to t- today our goal is uh, to get to know you guys a little bit better because you guys have been uh, publicizing and um, talking about your recent study, which is called uh, worship at the speed of sound. But before we get to that, I'd like to get to know each of you a little bit better. So uh, let's start with you, Mock. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do? Yeah, sure. Um, and again, just the the fact that you're willing to even try to go in the French and, and not just try, Tyler, to excel at the French uh, pronunciation of my name, um, I, I deeply appreciate. It. My wife can't even say my last name. That's how ba- that's how bad it is. So, uh, so I, as you mentioned, I'm the worship pastor at Moncton Wesleyan Church, and I've been there for about six years or so, and that's actually my home church. So I I grew up. Uh, at Moncton Wesleyan Church, and then I spent a good amount of time traveling and lived in the States for a few years and across Canada and various places and whatnot as a traveling musician for the better part of that time. Uh, And then I had a micro career elsewhere, and then I landed um, in the ministry in a way that I never would have anticipated, but I'm really incredibly grateful for it. I love it. And my first year on staff at Moncton Wesleyan Church, uh, I shared it with uh, the man who is kind of below me on the Brady Bunch screen right now recording, uh, Dr. Michael Tapper. And so my time with him really it was really encouraging for me and also helped kind of drive me towards uh, not necessarily deep into academia, but to exploring a little bit more behind kind of the whys and the what's. Uh, of what we do as a church. And so uh, to him, I owe part of the credit for why I ended up taking kind of a master's degree a few years later. And also he's the one who pulled me into this project uh, that we're going to be discussing tonight, for which I'm grateful. Too kind, Mark, too kind. Uh, Greetings, everyone. Mike Tapper. I'm down in uh, South Carolina, Central South Carolina. And I have the good privilege of being the chair of the religion department down here. They let Canadians uh, chair religion departments down here in South Carolina. So, uh, yeah, I've been here for five years, as Mark said. Um, I fashion myself, if this term actually exists, pracademic, that's probably what I would describe myself as. Um, I love the local church. Um, and I love the academy. So I like learning. And most of the research questions that I've had. Uh, they're really oriented towards practice. So, you know, lyrical analysis and what we're doing and what we've done in this study, it all kind of points to uh, an intrigue and an interest and a constructive critique of the church. So that um, that's my world right now. And I, I enjoy it. I love being in the classroom. I love being in and around the local church. And Mark and I are both really grateful that you've expressed some interest in our study. I really want to talk about this study. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about this? It's been featured in Christianity Today, Faith Today, and recently Worship Leader Magazine. Um, What is this study, Worship at the Speed of Sound? 
So a few years ago, Tyler, uh, we were gifted. I say gifted, but uh, we really were gifted with um, a whole swack of CCLI top 100 lists um, dating all the way back to CCLI's inception in the late 1980s. And uh, with these top 100 lists, CCLI publishes these lists every uh, twice a year, as many of your listeners and you would know, Tyler and Colin. And uh, so we had 64 lists dating back to 1989. We had to kind of figure out what we were going to do with it. And uh, with some discussion uh, together between Mark and I, we pulled in uh, someone from the industry who had a good sense of how these songs had emerged over the last few decades uh, and a couple amazing, amazing data analysts. Uh, we got together and we said, what, what can we do with these, uh, with these um, amazing lists? And we decided that one of the things that we might want to do is uh, to follow a hunch. The hunch of your listeners, and I'm presuming um, most people, is that the life curves of the songs that we're singing in our churches is compressing. That was our hunch, but there's never been a study really to validate that. And so that's essentially what we went after. Um, we combed the data, we removed the outliers, uh, resulting in a song corpus of 199 songs. Um, we established some time spans, five-year time spans to kind of establish uh, an aggregate curve for those five-year spans from 1995 all the way up to present. And then frankly, we just looked at uh, patterns and trends. So we looked at like rise trends in songs and and fall trends. And then we evaluated things like uh, what number are the top songs actually entering into uh, these CCLI charts at. And finally, we looked at uh, published to list trends, which is really, really interesting to us. How many years or months have um, actually um, spanned between the actual publication date of some of these songs. So that's what we did. And Mark, do you want to speak to what we actually found? Oh, I'm sure we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, we uh, discovered that songs guys are rising a lot, lot faster. Okay. When you, when you say rising, you mean up the, the, the CCLI chart? In other words, the songs are being played more frequently, more quickly. Once they arrive in our churches, Colin, they're, they're rising fast. Um, like within a year and a half, um, to two years, songs have peaked within our churches, right? Um, as opposed to um, a few decades back where, you know, songs typically had a lifespan of about 11 years um, on, on a CCLI list. Today, um, we're looking at, on average, about three years. Some of those songs are less than three years. Uh, some of them are more. That's from the moment that they enter into the CCLI list to the moment that they actually disappear. So there's a, there's a rise there of about a year and a half to three years. There's a fall these days of a year and a half to three years. Um, most of the songs, the popular songs, are hitting higher, which means it implies that more churches are singing the top songs um, faster and quicker. And then what I find most intriguing, Mark, you might find some intrigue in other areas, but it's been really interesting to me to notice the publication dates, like songs are really hitting our churches fast, uh, faster, like five times faster than they did 20 years ago. It's, you did a study over multiple decades. Is this a phenomenon that has occurred gradually, or is it the case that there's an obvious cutoff where maybe the, maybe there's just a big, a kind of punctuated switch? It's gradual, uh, except that there is this thing. <laughs> See, we had to arbitrarily choose. We didn't have to, but uh, for it to be uh, for it to be visual, for you to be able to otherwise, like if you tried to kind of display what this would look like, it would just look like you know a monster. So for it to actually be visual, we went with these five year um, uh, sections, and so around two thousand between two thousand and five and two thousand and ten, it's like somebody flicked a switch. And, and you see it just, wow, like something really happened then. And it does get faster. It gets faster after that. But the rate of change somewhere in that period 
um, is really, really distinct. Yeah. Mm. Any theories? I mean, obviously, we're getting into speculation now. We're moving away from the data, but I, I mean, there's a lot to speculate about this. I mean, yeah. any theory as to why that might be? But yeah, you so know, like, we we want to be like uh, we want to be really really clear that the the number one thing that we can all we can really do is bring the numbers right, and so we're we're really grateful for the fact that we have them. <laughs> so we're like, look look at the data. You can argue with anything, but you can't argue with these numbers. Uh, uh, so. Uh, but obviously, it, it just lies there uninterpreted, like the Bible. If nobody reads it, if nobody has any questions about it, right? And so, like, wh you know, what to do? What does it mean? Well, one of the theories about why maybe that kind of cataclysmic shift happens then was actually brought to me by a friend who is kind of in the industry uh, and is also a writer. Uh, and he said, "Oh, I can tell you exactly what happened." And he's like, "Christian radio started playing worship music right around 2005," and I was like. I wonder if that fact alone could be enough to to help explain kind of the epoch shift that happens right around there. Because, I mean, one of the things that we think is that there has to be, I mean, there is no one single answer. There has to be a whole complex of things that are going on here. But you would have to wonder if there would be a feedback loop that could start to happen based upon... Um, people hearing on a Sunday morning what they were hearing on a Tuesday morning on the way to work or whatever. Like if that kind of, if that kind of a shift could start to happen enough, uh, could that be enough of a kind of a, um, you know, jet fuel kind of promulgator to move this thing through? It's, it's a, it's a working theory. I don't know how we could prove it, but yeah, though, I mean, I don't know how you'd test that either. I mean, I guess you could try, it would be somewhat arbitrary. You could try to identify, you know, take the, the whole, period that you're talking about, try to categorize songs into this is clearly a worship song. And then this is clearly a, I don't know, whatever you'd call it, radio song or a, you know, a listen to you in the, in your car song. And I guess, I don't know, may, you know, are songs that are played more on Christian radio only in say 1990 through 2000, um, are those seeing that compressed lifestyle. Well, I guess, I don't know. How you, I don't know how you track that because they may not show up on CCLI because they wouldn't be sung in churches. I, that's that's a challenging... Yeah, how do you how do you measure that? I don't know. I mean, I guess you could kind of use the billboard charts or something like that to look at life cycles of, uh, you know, songs outside the church, but yeah. So Colin and Tyler, maybe perhaps uh, it might be helpful just to put a few yeah. songs, just throw a few songs out there mm -hmm. for these uh, aggregates. So 95 to 99, a classic curve would be like Refiner's okay. Fire. Yeah, I remember doing that song. <laughs> or like Take My Life or Knowing You. Uh, each of these songs, you know, six years up uh, before they crest in the in the top uh, 100 CCLI list and then about four to five years uh, falling. So like an 11 year time span, uh, jumping 05 to 09, marvelous light, uh, all because of Jesus, I am free. Um, we're seeing a compression there by a couple of years, nine years, four years up, five years down. Um, as Mark alluded here, by 10, uh, 2010 to 2014, there's a big, big jump here. So desert song, you make me brave, set a, set a fire, uh, only five years, um, lifespan in these songs, um, 2015 to 19, we only have, uh, curves like dating back to songs from 2019. Some of these curves naturally are still, you know, they're still, uh, establishing themselves, but songs like fierce overcome, even so come, uh, here as in heaven, three years three-year span. So um, maybe that's helpful to your listeners and to you guys to put some songs there. And it seems to me like there are, there are multiple different issues at play here. You've got, on the one hand, the transition from a kind of, um, well, you're Canadian, but 4th of July, have you ever done sparklers? <laughs> talking about? Like you have sparklers, which are like these slow burn fireworks that everyone kind of enjoys to like more of a firecracker thing where it just explodes and it's gone. So you've got the shorter period, a shorter curve length, but you've also got the fact that they're they're hot off of the press by the time they enter the church, and you've got the fact that they're entering 
the list much higher up. They didn't hit 100 and then climb to 90 and then 80 and then 70. It just seems like the, the, it's it's a total transformation of what's been established as normative for Christian music up until, you know, Absolutely. early 2000s. And everyone wants to know why. Tell me why. Uh, and so as we already alluded, I mean, uh, like you're, like the last relationship you put on Facebook, it's complicated. Uh, but we probably have at least three different kind of buckets of things that we could say that are kind of causative. Uh, so we have technology considerations, uh, we have industry considerations, and then we have uh, cultural considerations. And so uh, I like to remember that by like tick, tic-tac-toe, uh, or like that thing that can kind of burrow into your skin if you're not careful. Uh, so TIC, uh, so for technology, I mean, needless to say, it's it would almost be pedantic at this point in time to try to point out the kinds of ways that technology has changed since uh, you know 1989 to now, for example, uh, we would be doing this via payphone in 1989, not via Zoom, right? Um, but one of the ways that like, just one really hyper-specific example that probably not a lot of people think about is uh, lyric projection. So the uh, used to be that you would, if you wanted to sing a song together that you didn't have memorized, you needed to have a hymnal. Uh, and so there was a, a book that was either in the back of your pew or was handed out as you walked in. Um, and to get those bad boys updated was not exactly something that you could do overnight, right? Like these were big deals. Uh, and so, you know, eventually maybe people moved into photocopying if you were that, you know, wealthy of a church that you could afford to do that. But when all of a sudden 3M projector uh, was made so that you could over, oh, you know, over the course of a morning, hand write or print lyrics that would able to be projected on on the screen on Sunday morning, you just instantly revolutionized how quickly you could introduce a song on mass, right? And then fast forward another 20 years later, when you have, you know, every, every church is, is running pro presenter or media shout or some sort of a, even if you're just using, you know, my wife's church uses Microsoft uh, Office, that's not important, but you can do anything to, you know, instantly project lyrics, right? That's just one of this kind of like of the dozens and dozens of technological revolutions that have occurred over this lifetime uh, to make these things possible. And then, I mean, the the industry, well, we'll leave the industry for maybe later chatter. But then there's also this, the broader culture, the fact that we are kind of a culture that is ready to, ready for new, right? I, I'd say that we are not exactly a culture that likes uh, likes to hang out with the old for very long. It's kind of in with the new. And so and that's not just uh, the church, that's, that's the, the broader culture. And so, um, you know, it really can't be blamed for people looking for kind of new material, right? Something is also, even if we look at the Bible itself, you know, the psalmist enjoins us to to sing a new song unto the Lord. And so uh, a lot of people are just doing their best to try to follow through on what they think the Bible is telling them to do. Uh, but the industry itself is also kind of a larger uh, nut that maybe we want to, if we have time, we can kind of crack a little bit. But I'd love to have that nut cracked. Can you? You said you want to save it for later, but I'm I'm curious. What what is it about the music industry or the Christian music industry in particular? Well, I mean, we're dealing with a a billion dollar industry, Tyler and Colin. When we uh, enter into that uh, discussion, and there's it's complicated. It's a it's an industry with a lot of dollars that are associated with it. Um, you know, we often um, think and talk as we you know consider record labels and publishing companies and how this is actually all working. Um, it's a phenomenon. We alluded to it here just a little bit ago, how quickly songs are actually promulgating, how they're, how quickly they're, they're creating. We're down here in the Atlanta area, a couple hours from Atlanta. Um, Maverick city is, um, is a, a phenomenon. It's a group that's on the rise that happens to be located in this area. Um, couple of our students uh, here at Southern Wesleyan University um, just before Christmas, this would have been like maybe early, mid-November, um, hopped in a car, went to Atlanta, um, was part of a, um, a publication, uh, part of an evening of worship there at, um, at Maverick City uh, for their Christmas album. And then two weeks later, 
the song uh, actually went, you know, national and global. So, I mean, we're talking about an industry where you, some of the people at the top of the food chain can really churn this music out really, really quickly. And of course, there's some pretty significant implications to that. Yeah. And it, it, lest it sound like we're saying that that's a um, intrinsically bad thing, it's, it's merely the acknowledgement that it seems to be the case. Uh, I often say, uh, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And so, like, it's hard to say at what point in time what's causative and then what's kind of correlative or what's causative and what's the effect that comes with it, you might almost say, I guess. So, like, uh, people have developed a living through doing this sort of thing. And then uh, that becomes, and you know, so by record labels, by publishing, uh, by so there's people who make tracks for for um, backing tracks for for worship songs, right? And they release those, they sell those. Uh, that's not evil. That's not evil. You know, that's just it's just it is what it is, right? And so, uh, however, the more and more of the scaffolding that kind of gets built up, you need new content to move through these ranks, or else it all kind of it, it kind of falls back upon itself. And so it's it's. Um, you, it's it's really complicated to understand how you could ever really ratchet it down at this point in time anyway and like again to really be like brute honest I mean, you could take a look at the songs that i lead on a sunday morning i i'm i'm a part of this system so i'm i am i am doing the top and the fresh songs i'm also doing you know some old songs as well don't get me wrong uh but i'm by no means shy of, of going with what's what's on the top of the ccli lists and we have friends who are who are hoping both both Mike and I have friends who are hoping and continuing to aspire to be successful worship songwriters, uh, right? So like, but the acknowledgement is for them to be a successful worship songwriter, it means that someone is going to have to be singing their songs in church, right? Like, so it, like it's it's a complicated a complicated beast, and nobody's trying to say that this is a bad thing. It's just merely like, hey, let's let's really assess the lay of the land and understand what we're talking about right now. Yeah. So, so Mark, so I just asked a question about speculation and you touching on value judgment now. So I would actually like to broach that issue of value judgment. Yeah. I, I could see how there would be, there could be pros to this too. Like this is not, it, you're right. I don't think it's intrinsically a bad thing. It is a different thing. And our conservative impulses, you know, everyone's got conservative impulses, which tell us to say the old thing was better and the new thing is strange and weird and I'm afraid of it. But I mean, maybe I could just ask you outright and feel free to answer as much as you want. But, you know, from your perspective as a worship leader and obviously a person who's involved in this study, um, yeah, what are some of maybe the pros and the cons from a practical perspective, of, you know, regarding this phenomenon? Yeah, well, when I think one of the pros, um, I think of, and this might be a controversial pro, but... Um, Mike cited the example of like Maverick City and how quickly they were able to turn that around. Um I look at a song like The Blessing that came out kind of like right at the the peak of the or the, the start slash peak, however you want to view it, of the pandemic. And um a song that was really like written on a Thursday or a Friday, uh sung that Sunday at a church, and then within a week or two, just like you know, swept the globe. Um and so if you can detach from this any kind of monetary uh, goals or whatnot, and just go, at what other time and what other place could we have a global, um, in my opinion, very, very biblical, uh, global anthem spread around that quickly and kind of unite that many churches that fast? And I would say, no, no time, right? Very obviously, no time in history. And so, the structures that enabled that to happen, um, I view that as as a kind of a beautiful thing. Uh, the ability to kind of pivot uh, that quickly, I, I think, is is wonderful. And just just a point of information for our listeners, real quick. Uh, Worship Review gave that song four out of five. So uh, Tyler gave it four out of five well surprise tenors. And I gave it four out of five sharks jumped. So we agree with you that this was generally <laughs> a, a, a beneficial thing. So yeah, anyway, carry on. You were, you were going to give some more examples. That's no, we agree. Um, and I'm sure we could find some more, more benefits as well, but just th that's, a, that's a huge one. 
the the biggest potential pitfall, and I think Mike agrees with me on this. You know, nine times out of ten, uh, when we're doing these kinds of interviews, we're not talking to people who are in Catholic churches or people who are in Orthodox churches or people who are atheists. Uh, most of the time, and if that's you, then thank you for sticking around. Uh, most of the time, <laughs> we're speaking to evangelicals for the most part, right? I'm actually yeah. a Catholic Orthodox. Um, oh, you just <laughs> struck out right boxes. <laughs> you got it. The trifecta. Um, and so for the overwhelming majority of that subset of the world, um, the over nothing is left in their liturgy that is responsive, that involves them on a week-in and week-out basis other than the songs. You know, like a lot of us are doing, you know, communion every six weeks or something like that. Uh, there's no responsive prayers in our service. Um, and it's, so it's like, it's it's this, the songs. Let the, that's all we have left. And and so these songs, that therefore we've put a lot of our kind of formational and expectational eggs in the basket of these songs. And I know that I'm, I'm preaching to the choir when I say that on this Zoom call. So because of that, um, for 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 me when i think about it i'm like how how much more difficult is it going to be for these songs to kind of make their way not merely into somebody's head but into their heart uh if they're kind of here today and gone tomorrow so i think of like you know our, our parishioners when they are really at the, the end of their rope um or you hear these stories all the time about people, sometimes at the end of their life, right? When sometimes dementia has taken them and they're not even able to remember the, the name of their husband, but they can sing. Uh, you know, when when that comes around, are we are we running the risk of not giving them enough runway uh, with the material that we've been using in our, in our worship services for those songs to be there when they need them? Um, and I don't have a I don't have a good answer on that because I don't think the alternative is, you know, just sh shut down, close close the canon of your songbook, and that's all there is to it. We're only going to do everything from you know two thousand and five back. I don't think that's the answer, uh, but I'm I am afraid that if we continue, I guess if we're not conscious of the the rate of change within our own congregations and that's ultimately what we have to be responsible for is you know if you're a worship leader today if you're a song planner if you're a pastor of a church you're not responsible for the industry uh you're responsible for your your flock uh so for the people that you're looking after you know how are you going to be keeping an eye on on that pulse uh the speed uh, from which uh it's flowing in and out of your own your own church yeah i could certainly imagine this is the thought that came to my mind that with a higher periodicity of worship music coming in and out and in and out more quickly you could obviously you could pass more information through that kind of a structure you could have more words uh, but they would also be transient words they wouldn't be words that would stick around and i was listening to a podcast recently there was a guy who was in his 80s or 90s welsh pastor and he said he still remembers as a child his mother singing hymns all day long while she cooked and cleaned stuff like that and i just think if uh, I'm not saying that we all need to go do that. You know, we like we all need to sing hymns all the time at house at our house. But we are sort of robbing, uh, you know, each other of of that experience of having, you know, something like Amazing Grace that everyone will know, and you know, an impromptu gathering of a bunch of believers can all sing this. And it, I don't, I don't know what it looks like if it's. Oh, are we going to do the twenty? 14 version of this or the 2016 version by Hillsong, you know, it seems like we run into some trouble there. Um, at the same time, maybe, maybe there isn't a problem because it seems like what's happening is the uh, attitudes about pop cult, like pop music, are influencing music consumption and music expression. Um, inside of the church too and so maybe it does reflect more just broader wide spectrum preferences in the church i i do think just about like uh you mentioned you know the 2014 version or 2016 version andrea hunter who's one of the people who worked with us on this project pointed out to me i was coming on kind of strong with some of this concept at first and she said you know a lot of these songs are actually just repackages 
of older songs, right? So you think of like Chris Tomlin's uh, My Chains Are Gone or whatever. Um, and you're like, yes, you're right. You are. However, but the, the melody has changed. The, the timing signature has changed. Um, and so it's, it's, you, it's not, um, I, my son reads from the NLT uh, when he reads the Bible and uh, God love him. Uh, and I used to read the message, so I'm no, no, no stones. Uh, but like, so I'm, you know, I'm mostly an NIV guy or sometimes ESV. But the point is, is we have such an, a breadth of different words for the same words that um, we don't even have the, and this is not a problem that can easily be solved, but we can't even quote at the best we can elude. <laughs> That's all we can do to each other right now is make it, oh yeah, I get the gist of, you know, what you're, what you're saying from judges, but like the words themselves are, are literally not the same, same words and the same kind of, the same kind of potential breakdown uh, is happening in our liturgy as well, where we're not even, even if we're singing the same content, we're not singing it in the same way. Mike, I've got a question for you. Um, on a similar note, what implications might one draw from uh, this shortening time period in which songs uh, peak and fall again? Mm. As a uh, pracademic, uh, what what conclusions or uh, uh, implications might you draw from that? Yeah, well, my guess is that there's probably some worship leaders that are listening to this. And one of the things that we wanted to be really clear about when we started this study um, we didn't want it to come across like we were slaying contemporary worship music. Um, we realized that the worship leaders that are probably listening to this, um, I mean, you've come through a brutal two years uh, experience. Some of you have been connecting in churches, but probably you're trying to figure out what remote has looked like. And it's been really, really difficult and really, really exhausting. So we we've wanted uh, this study to be essentially a pump primer for, frankly, these sorts of conversations. Um, just this morning, I spoke with a worship um, worship pastor who uh, read the study, and they were like, "Man, thanks for naming something that I've been actually afraid to to mention uh, before." So, if we if this study prompts the sort of discussions that we're having today then I'm, 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 I'm a happy, I'm a happy person. Um, I think that the study has accomplished what it has intended to do. Um, a conviction that I have guys is that our, uh, worship leaders are the theological gatekeepers of our churches these days. Um, that may come as a, an offense to somebody that's listening that might be a lead pastor, but I'm as convinced as ever that the people that are guiding and leading the songs that we're singing in our churches, um, they hold the keys, the theological uh, keys. And we like to do a little experiment when people challenge us on this. Um, it's a simple little three question uh, challenge. And the challenge is what did the pastor preach on topic last week? Um, a lot of people struggle with that topic, not, not points, but topic. Um, as Mark alluded, our biblical literacy these days is is pretty shabby. So, I mean, you could throw a bone and say, quote, Romans 12 or maybe even John 3.16, and you'd have some people scrambling and looking at their feet and looking away. But uh, if you said something like, um, fill in the blank, you call me out upon the, <laughs> um, you know, they're there more often than not, what we've found with that little experiment is there's a lot of people struggling with neurological recall. There's a lot of people struggling with scripture, but those, those words are, are connecting. Um, Jamie Smith wrote, uh, that book, you are what you love a few years ago. And, um, and, uh, that's really connected, uh, with, with Mark and I, as we've, as we've talked about this and as we've prepared this, it's the worship pastors we're convinced that are reinforcing those micro liturgies to borrow a Jamie Smith uh, phrase there. And that, and the songs that we sing, they do have uh, this, this profound effect on us, maybe even subconsciously um, as even as they fizz bang in and out. And, um, and so we want, we want listeners who have the privilege of leading others in worship. We want them to feel uh, some of the responsibility of that, but if it's possible to share that responsibility and not 
feel it in a burdensome way. I, I think that's um, that's what we want to challenge worship uh, leaders uh, and pastors uh, as a, with this study. Yeah, and I imagine there are some worship leaders that you know getting the data is is a good thing regardless of kind of what it shows it's it's useful for worship leaders to have that so there may be some people like this person that was speaking to you earlier and in his church uh, he might say okay this trend is a, actually a good thing uh, I, you know we're going to press into this and it that gives him some information to go with whereas you know a person in a different church maybe they're thinking about some of the things that Mark was saying about uh you know, hey, our church actually needs some songs that are kind of timeless, and maybe we're we're not doing that, and and we need to rethink that. So, by having the study and having the data out there, it does it provokes those conversations, and probably on in different churches and different places, they're going to react differently. Yeah, that's good, Colin. Really and truly, the the two major studies that I've been a part of in the last decade or so, it's it's merely validating some of the hunches yeah. that, that people actually have. So if there's a gift at all to these modest studies, it's we're, we're, we're putting data, as Mark said, we're, we're giving people the numbers yeah. to reinforce some of their, some of their either otherwise yeah. anecdotal yeah. Um, hunches. It's good because the worship wars are so subjective, right? It's so much about perceptions, subjective perceptions, and to just even have, basic data like this is going to be real valuable. Tyler, you got anything else? Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you, Mike, a little bit more. I'm assuming that second study you're talking about is painting in full spectrum. Is that right? Yeah, it was actually, uh, no one would read it but my mother, but it was my PhD uh, thesis. Uh, 2014, uh, I looked at the Trinitarian uh, the lyrical anal and lyrical analysis of the, the Trinitarian trends in the music that we've been singing. But that, I mean, that's way, way back in 2014. So oh, eternity well, pretty archaic. That's, yeah. yeah. It's ancient history, but I think it it's is. still yeah. interesting. Yeah. You Cuneiform. I wrote it. Uh, <laughs> you had a wedge and you, you know, <laughs> yeah. carved it into soft clay with that. But what, <laughs> what did you find while doing that, uh, PhD thesis work? Well, essentially Tyler, um, thanks for asking, uh, like I said, only my mom has uh, asked me those that good question before. Uh, essentially, we're not as Trinitarian as we think that we are. Um, I looked at, you know, three different angles in uh, the music that we that we were singing at the time. Um, looked at, you know, divine pronouns and divine actions, um, the lyrical content as it relates to our views about God. The, our lyrical content as it relates to human personhood. So there were three different. Uh, evaluations there at the personhood level. And then cause cosmologically, there's some stuff going on uh, in music, like as it relates to time and timelessness and material and immaterial, but at bottom, and I was, I was playing off of a, a theological bias. Um, I'm, 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 I'm all about Trinitarian theology. And so um, I had a hunch that we weren't as Trinitarian as we thought that we are. It's, it's fascinating to me that in virtually all of our statements of faith, 1.1 is usually God is one, God is three. And yet if there's a discrepancy to, to what we're actually claiming, then, you know, there's implications for that. That's probably another podcast though. However, it's worth mentioning that, um, I can't remember if it was Colin or Tyler who said this, but, uh, you know, confirming, confirming the bias or kind of confirming the hunches going into this. Well, what's funny is that you, this did confirm the hunch that you had, which is that our evangelical churches are not nearly as Trinitarian as we might have thought, but it it kind of deconfirmed. That's not the right. Uh, invalidated the the other the other uh, thought, which is that well, they don't write them like they used to. Uh, so people thinking because he looked at both modern worship songs and hymns, and they both came out less than squeaky clean. Uh, so it wasn't as though this is a brand new problem that emerged with uh, overhead projectors and and fancy fancy new sound systems, but it's actually kind of been with us for hundreds of years. So almost identical data. Uh, which was really, really fat. Uh, I I didn't I didn't expect that at all. Yeah, that was really. I looked at your study. It was fascinating. I mean, I would have thought there would have at least been. Well, there was a slight difference, but it wasn't. It wasn't much. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Yeah. As a a spoiler for the next episode, it's uh, called "Counting Every Blessing," 
And it obviously brought to mind this late 19th century count your many blessings. And if I evaluate the lyrics of that late 19th century hymn, not a single blessing is named. <laughs> not a single one. It's just telling you, here's a trick when, you know, when you're feeling down and out. Uh, and, you know, this, this newer one actually has many different uh, blessings named. That's true. But, Mike, I was curious, uh, in particular, um, you looked at the distribution of various nouns. And uh, you compared the hymns to the contemporary worship songs. And I've, I've got them pulled up here. This is from the Worship Leader Magazine 36. And what I noticed is that, as you, as you point out, the, the words themselves tend to be similar, right? It, it's not like we have new words for communicating um, spiritual um, truths. And yet, there are some interesting... Uh, insertions, if you will. So, for example, the most common material noun in contemporary worship songs is darkness. And that didn't even show up in the hymns. Yeah, good pick. Yeah. So we've got to ask some questions like, what is this? Um, what is this um, obsession, perhaps, that we have that's associated with with darkness? Um, darkness and love. Tyler, when it comes to the material or the immaterial, um, love wins the day in, uh, in immaterial nouns these days. Yeah. Another thing that struck me in looking at those, the, the data, and of course, this will be put in the show notes so that people can read this, but I'm looking at page 38 here. Uh, it looks to me like the uh, different nouns are distributed less evenly. It seems like, like darkness is worlds above grave. Uh, you know, four or five times more frequent. Also, love and sin, like the curve tends to drop off steeper and faster for the contemporary Christian songs than it did for the hymns, which seem to have presumably a more even distribution across a bunch of different nouns, which brought to my mind the fact that, um, I don't know if you've ever heard this joke, but if you plug in a, a few words, you can basically create a Christian worship song. And a lot of those words, it's going to be dark, there's going to be love, you know, maybe uh, hope, life, light, and then you can kind of crunch it and you end up with a song that has all of these very frequent nouns. Um, I guess I'm coming across as more more um, critical than I, than I need to be. But uh, I, I guess to phrase this as a question, what do you make of the less even distribution of these nouns in these songs? Yeah, it's a good question. You're right, Tyler. Um, it was really fascinating to recognize that a lot of the same words are actually porting from the hymns, right? Um, but I mean, an argument might be made with that uh, drop off there that maybe your listeners are are seeing this, um, that maybe we're, you know, we're dialed in on, you know, some of these themes and some of these words. Uh, and and that that tends to be the consuming uh, noun or focus or theme of, uh, of the songs that we're singing. Uh, truthfully, I haven't gone, um, much deeper into it than, um, than what I published there uh, with a group of people back here a few years ago. Um, anecdotally, if, if time was not an issue, uh, man, I'd be so fascinated to dial in on like words like glory that seem to be like popping uh, up uh, all over the place in the songs that we're singing um, with a lot of different meaning. I'm not even sure what we're singing about. Is it heaven? Is it Isaiah chapter six? Um, so yeah, that would be one um, to lock in on a word. If I, if time wasn't an issue, I'd lock in on, on a word like glory and say, how are we using that word and what does it actually mean today? I think as a way of wrapping this interview up, I'd like to ask each of you the same question, and I'll start with you, Mark. Um, what direction would you like to see worship music? Oh, man. <laughs> Softball. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I, I think... Uh... I, I I couldn't possibly. <laughs> I couldn't possibly eat another bite. Uh, I I would just like to say I'd like to see people who are. I, I, I think that we have kind of probably reached 
a, a tipping point in terms of there being even the concept of worship music, uh, like a generic one for the globe, uh, one for every church. I think um, that's probably, oh, we've probably kind of tipped over on this and maybe this one, the pendulum will swing back at some point in time. But I think now we need to be kind of thinking about of all of the kinds of music that's available, of all of the the songbook of the ages and the songbook that's that's fresh and current right now, what what's going to be best serving uh, the local church where we serve? Uh, and so I'm I'm much more interested in what and uh, I, I want to see people succeed and continue to put out fresh new stuff. I want to see people. Uh, uh, you know, have these juggernaut hits. I do. I, and I love leading bombastic, loud uh, worship music, and I love uh, leading quiet hymns. Uh, and so I, I want to continue to see people at the local church level have the kind of autonomy and, and the spirit ledness uh, to be able to do what's right for, for their people, for their for the seasons that they're in. Yeah, we recently had a pastor on who mentioned uh, having the music be, I think he used the term indigenous, and he wasn't talking about indigenous peoples, but what he meant was, you know, if I plant a church in downtown Atlanta, it's going to sound different than if I plant it in Knoxville, Tennessee, for example. And uh, I, I wonder, if I may, Mark, as a follow-up, how does that, if we have this kind of hyper-focus on local and localization of music, how does that fit in with the kind of as you said before, a global network of certain music producers uh, making these super hits overnight. Yeah, it's going to have to be tenuous. Uh, it's going to have to be a, a dance uh, as we kind of walk through it, I think. Uh, like, it's okay for, I think it's okay for music. It's uh, The church music, church music does not have to reflect exclusively culture. Um, that has kind of been a high value, I think, that the evangelical church has has brought with them, for la- in particular for the last 20 years, but even passed into that. And, you know, we want to sound relevant, right? Um, and so, but it has actually created a sub-genre, right? So now we, we, we know that there's certain kinds of... Now uh, we're creating music that sounds like worship music. Um, uh, not that we're necessarily creating worship music that sounds like Top 40, like, but it has its own sound. Uh and it doesn't have to do that anymore, but nor does your music have to necessarily sound like exactly what's happening in the local clubs either. Like that, you don't have to just kind of turn on your radio and, and try to figure out well what are people in my town listening to, and then craft craft your worship services to to match that. It's okay for it to be a sacred space, um, and how it's going to be a sacred space in Moncton, New Brunswick, at my uh, evangelical church. Uh, is going to be different than how it's going to be a sacred space in in Indiana and in South Carolina, and I presume pretty much everywhere else. But it's not necessarily going to be like categorically different, right? Like it's going to we have dialects. We, you and I speak the same language, but I I spell words differently than you do, and I say some of them differently than you do. Uh, and so I think there's going to be really probably some stark differences in some respects between our worship services, but in, in other respects, there's just going to be these kind of subtle. I, I use a U when I spell savior and you don't. Mm-hmm. Or you say cur instead of car, right? There's no. <laughs> I'm a cur. Driving a car. <laughs> Mike, can I ask you the same question? What direction would you like to see worship music take? Yeah, sure. I'll use a, a little story from the first study that, or the 2014 study that we talked about with lyrical analysis. Um, Silly Me, 2019 or 20, whenever it published. Um, thought it might be a good idea to uh, gift, let's say, use the word, uh, gift the study to a large uh, Facebook page, Worship Leader Plus, 10,000, 15,000 listeners or uh, followers just posted, stupid choice on my part, just posted the study. No, no uh, commentary, nothing, just posted it. And sat back thinking stupid me that it'd be like, Oh man, this will be a gift. And I, I think they had to shut the, the comments down, uh, because, uh, worship leaders were, I mean, they just hammered me, like just absolutely hammered me. Who, who do you think you are? And da, 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 da. Uh, my motive, I can say on my side was 
uh, constructively critical. Um, it was interpreted as a slam. It was it was interpreted as um, a shot. Um, what do I hope for? Um, I guess I'd, I'd hope for more conversations like this um, that help to break down some of that, uh, some of those big, big walls that exist. Because I mean, there's a lot of worship leaders that would hear this podcast and would just dismiss it just outright because of some of the, you know, what we might perceive to be constructively critical um, information or comments, but they would perceive as a slam or just an absolute hammer. So I'd like to see uh, people like you, Colin and Tyler, engaging with songwriters. Um, I don't know what that looks like, truthfully. I'm, I'm, I'm not an idealist. I'm a realist. Uh, so I don't, I don't really know what that looks like, but I'm encouraged when I see things at the grassroots level, like songwriting seminars and guilds and they're inviting people like you into the conversation. So um, I'm not sure what that looks like in the future, but I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic and hopeful that whatever we get to in the future, that it somehow brings uh, really sharp and awesome people like you into some of these songwriting rooms and, and, and into contexts where, that academic and local church research gap can can be lessened. Mike, can you just tell our listeners one more time where they can find you, this most recent study? Yeah, sure. So just recently it published in Worship Leader Magazine. Um, it published in December in Christianity. And for those of you in Canada, um, not sure if we have any listeners, but it uh, it published in a smaller study uh, called in a magazine called Faith Today. We'll also be probably popping it around with good commentary <laughs> in some social uh, platforms here over the next little while as well. And if you happen to be a listener and you come across the study, uh, give a good stiff critique. Feel free to give a comment to it. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be glad for that. If you do, it will uh, have accomplished what we had hoped, which is essentially provoke a conversation. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mike, so much for being on the show. Pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We are excited to be back again next week with Mike and Mark to talk about uh, Counting Every Blessing by Rend Collective. So tune in for that. Uh, you can find uh, Mark's work at com. Is that right? Sure is. I got to, to spell that though. So that's M A R C, right? And then J O L I C O R. So many vowels. So many vowels. Many vowels, but only one mark. So check it out <laughs> and uh, follow his podcast, Jolly Thoughts. And uh, we hope to check in with you again next week. Thanks. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.